Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And every time we switch attention, think of it as erasing the information you needed for that last task and having to write new information for the current task you're doing. And that's a switch cost that takes time for our minds to come up with this new information. Sometimes, just like with a real whiteboard, we can't erase it completely and there's a residue. And so if I'm reading some gripping news story and then I try to go back to work, that news story, parts of it might stay with me and interfere with my task at hand. So that's that's another kind of cost. And of course, you're right. It causes stress. We know in laboratory research, it increases blood pressure. There's a physiological marker that's associated with stress that rises. In my work where we've used heart rate monitors, we see a very strong correlation with stress and attention shifting. And, and people report subjectively that they have higher perceived stress when their attention shifts. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Gloria, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about you because you have a new book out uh, called Attention Span, which obviously is something that I think every one of us who is listening to this is concerned with. And your name had come up so many times that the, uh, the books I've read by former podcast guests, so I figured it was a no-brainer to reach out to you. But before we get into uh, the book in your work, I wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living? And how did that end up shaping what you ended up doing with your life and career? Oh, that's that's very interesting. My my father was an auditor for the government. He actually uh, worked for as a civilian for the Air Force. And um, my mother was a secretary and later became a uh, a court reporter, but she also worked for for the government. So, um, yeah, both of my parents uh, work for the government. What 
impact did that end up having on you? And uh, what was your narrative about making your way in the world in your household? Because I remember from early on in the book that you actually initially pursued a career in the arts. Yes. So it, it wasn't so much uh, the fact that my parents worked for the government. It was more the fact that my parents really had an appreciation for reading. And so they, they read a lot. They, in fact, they always disparaged our school system because they didn't force kids to read so much. But my parents were role models in the sense that they, uh, they not only read a lot, but, you know, I felt that they had more of an intellectual bent than, uh, most of the people in the area where I grew up. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, I, every time I talk to educators, I am always curious about how they would actually redesign our modern education system. I know that you're in the UC system. My dad is a professor in the UC system and he and I go back and forth constantly about the value of education. And, uh, as a Berkeley undergrad, I always joke that I was a failed byproduct of this system. But, uh, if you had been tasked with redesigning the entire system from the ground up, based on your upbringing and what you said about, you know, not instilling more reading uh, in kids. What would you change about the way that we educate people? Oh, wow. That's that's a big, <laughs> it's a big topic. So uh, do you want me to talk from the perspective of the student or the perspective of professors and teachers? How about you give me both? Okay. All right. So the the overriding theme that covers both of them is to restructure the system along with incentives so that people can have longer periods of time to focus. So from a student's perspective, uh, they're, they're always switching between different classes. And, you know, of course, we know that when people shift their attention very fast, they, they make more errors. They can't really get very deeply into a topic. Uh, it, it does create stress, but the system is designed for kids to be switching back and forth. And of course, they have their own personal spheres that they're also switching back and forth uh, between. My my daughter went to Colorado College, which has a very different approach. They do one class at a time, and you get very deeply immersed in one class for a period, I think it's about six weeks, and you do nothing else except that class. You live, breathe, <laughs> think about that class. And as a result, I, I think that's a much better educational experience for uh, for students because they can really go very, very deeply. Every day, that's all you're talking about. It's all you're thinking about. And it really gives you a chance to go into a lot of depth. You know, from the perspective of professors, which, you know, I can talk about, I've had a lot of experience in the UC system. Uh, I know that professors are always under the gun to excel, not just in research, but also in teaching and in service commitments. And we're also switching our attention because we have all these different spheres of work that we have to take care of, that we have to excel in. And so it's very hard 
to stay focused on one particular thing when we have so many competing demands. So I, I would, I would restructure the, uh, the educational system at, at the university level for professors so that they're rewarded not on quantity of publications, but really on the contributions that they make. And so, you know, it may be that instead of writing and publishing 10 papers, you do one, but you do one that's really going to be impactful. And and that's the paper that you get to be known for. So I, I would really restructure it in that way. Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned this idea of going deep, and I knew that I was going to be talking to you. And I wanted to bring back a clip from a conversation I had with David Epstein, who wrote the book Range. Take a listen. Going forward to higher ed, which you mentioned, I think there are two main issues here, main problems. First is what I write about in Range called the end of history illusion, this psychological finding that at every time point in life, we will all recognize that we have changed a lot in the past based on our experiences and then say, but now I'm pretty much done. And every time point in life, we will we'll say that and we will be wrong. We will underestimate future change at every time point, even when we're very old. But at no time is that more true than from about 18 to the late 20s. That's when you undergo mm-hmm. the fastest time of personality yeah. change. And so essentially, right at the start of that period, we're telling someone, pick now, which, which is really asking them to pick for a person they don't yet know, mm-hmm. and, and certainly in a world they can't yet conceive, unless they have a crystal ball that most people don't. So how do you balance what David is saying there with this idea of also going really deep into one area? Yeah, I I don't think there's a contradiction at all, because I think if a person really becomes proficient in one area, it's it, it's possible to uh, take that that expertise and be able to transfer it into something else. I I started out in art, in fine art. So my first degree is in fine art. And I was able to switch over to science. And I found that the experience of doing art and learning how to do what's called lateral thinking, uh, which is a, a way to, a form of creativity. Uh, I found that to be so useful in my career as a scientist because it enabled me to form hypotheses that uh, maybe a lot of people might not have done, because typically science trains people in linear logical thinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this creates pretty narrow bounds of of reasoning. And so I, I do think that a person can really become deeply proficient in one area and then you you can take that experience. It's a, it's a different topic, but you can take that experience you have of of learning, and you can apply it in a different area. Yeah. Well, to anybody who's a parent listening to this, who has uh, a kid who is starting college or currently in college, what would you say to them about helping their kids make the most of that college experience? Oh, I I'm a big advocate that. You know, young people should study whatever they're passionate about. You know, really find what you're interested in and you, you will make it work in terms of 
becoming sustainable after you graduate, but really study what you're passionate about. And I've, I've met so many people that have majored in fields that where you would, you wouldn't think there would be a financial reward, but, but they managed to make it work. And it's so important to keep that passion alive when, when a student is, uh, in their undergrad and, and through graduate school if, if they choose to go there. Yeah. Well, I, I would imagine that would make, you know, paying attention a lot easier. Just, you know, hearing you say that, I, looking back to uh, my own experience at Berkeley, I realized I was never genuinely interested in any of the things that I was studying. They were all kind of a means to an end. And so it was always hard for me to focus. And I realized the times that it was easiest to actually pay attention were the times when I was genuinely curious or interested in something. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, this is another problem with the educational system. Why is it that we've created courses that where it's so hard for students to, to become interested in them? Uh, you know, I think any, any field, you know, physics, biology, chemistry, history, anthropology, any of those fields, uh, a person could be passionate about. So, you know, I think we have to examine the, the way these courses are being taught. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's get into the book. What in the world led you on the trajectory from studying fine arts to studying attention? Well, it it was was a person by the name of uh, Manfred Cochin. And uh, let, let me also start by saying, by, by the time I graduated from art, I realized how hard it was to make a living in art. And I saw the most talented uh, recent graduates who were working at jobs eight hours a day in things they didn't like in order to support their art. And a lot of people can do that, uh, but that wasn't for me. And and I also was was good in other things like math and science. And I thought, you know, I I can be equally creative in those areas. And I would have a lot easier of a time getting a job. And so I switched. And so I was at University of Michigan starting graduate work and I needed a job. And I saw an ad for a research assistant. Uh, and so this was, the ad was put out by Manfred Cochin, who was an information scientist. And I went and visited him and he asked me, can you code? I said, no. <laughs> Do you know network theory? No. Nope. Do you know queuing theory? No. Nope. And he asked me all these things and I kept saying no. And so I just picked up my backpack, thanked him and started to walk out. And then he called after me and said, wait a minute, what what can you do? And I said, well, I, I can paint and uh, and I can draw. And he said, come back and sit down. And he said before he got his Ph.D. in math at MIT, he studied at the Art Student League in New York. And we talked about art for the next two hours. And then he asked me, do I think I can investigate the discovery process because he has a grant to study this. And I said, of course I can. I I know how artists make discoveries. I just didn't know how to put it into scholarly terms. And so 
in order to do this research, I took a very deep dive into cognitive psychology. And I, I just started, you know, on my own learning cognitive psychology. And I was able to, uh, write about how artists make discoveries. And that set me on a path to, uh, pursuing uh, a PhD in psychology. And I went to Columbia to do my PhD. You open the book by saying that people say it is just too hard to focus when they're on their computers and smartphones. We will see in this book that distractions are not just due to notifications popping up across their screens or the chimes of their phones. Surprisingly, people are nearly as often distracted by something within themselves, a thought, a memory, an urge to look up information or desire to connect with others. When you're immersed in the world's largest candy store, it's hard to resist sampling the wares. How do we get into this mess in the first place? And you know, is there a way out of it um, that isn't as extreme as our friend Cal Newport talks about? There are most certainly is a, is a way out. How did we get ourselves into this position? Well, you know, as you mentioned, it's it's the world's largest candy store. And every year there's always some new source of distraction that uh, that enters. And not every year, I, w- I would say, you know, every every week. So we're, you know, certainly faced with all kinds of potential distractors. Uh, you can turn off notifications, of course. I, I think many, maybe most people do. Uh, so it's not only external notifications that cause a, our attention to uh, to wander, but it's also thoughts inside ourselves, and and we're almost as likely to interrupt ourselves as to be interrupted by something external, even a phone call. And where where do these inner urges come from? They they come from habit. It could come from remembering something we had to do. Uh, Also, a a big component of that uh, was discovered by a researcher about 100 years ago called Bluma Zygarnik. And Bluma Zygarnik, uh, she she worked in at University of Berlin, and she found that when people have interrupted tasks, they're more likely to remember them than tasks that are finished. Why? Because when you finish something, it's it's off your plate. You're done with it. When you haven't finished something, there's still a tension that that an individual has to finish that task. So there's this. You know, think of it as this memory that remains on the back burner of your mind. And it's just sizzling there. And this is another reason for self-interruption, because we have so many uh, interrupted tasks. We have that email that we looked at the subject header and figured we would go back to it. We've interrupted tasks, writing a book chapter, creating a budget. I mean, our days in our you know, current environment are are comprised of shifting our attention rapidly. And with that, very often comes interrupting tasks. Yeah. Well, let's talk about multitasking. Because you say there's a paradox in the very design of the internet itself, a structure that makes it easy to find information and maps onto how our memory is organized as a network of associations. 
With the node and link structure of the internet also goes us into spending countless hours surfing the internet, we may have the illusion that we're doing more and that our human capacity has expanded when we shift our attention or multitask, but we're actually doing less. And, you know, thinking about this internet rabbit hole thing, it reminded me of an old business partner who told me he got on Google one day, I think he was reading about an upcoming election. And by the time he was done, he had told me that he had basically spent an hour researching spirit cooking uh, about elected uh, officials. I was like, how the hell did you get from (laughs) researching, you know, current politics to spirit cooking? Well, that that sounds very familiar. I, I hear that a lot. I experienced that myself, too. So um, let's when we talk about how the Internet is designed to distract us, let's let's start with the original idea of of the Web. And it goes back to the engineer Vannevar Bush with his idea of the memics. And I, I know uh, a lot of people have heard about the memics idea. Have have you heard of it? Do you know mm-hmm. about it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, a lot of people haven't, so maybe I can explain it very quickly. So Vannevar Bush was the head of the U.S. Office of Scientific Research in 1945, and he had to deal with a lot of information, and he was very dissatisfied with the, the current systems of organizing information, which was the Dewey Decimal System. And that organized information based on a hierarchy. And he said, uh, you know, this, this doesn't work because that's not how humans think. Humans think in terms of associations. So he came up with this idea, the memics, which it was a, a, a concept. It was never built. And the, the idea was that all of our personal information should be linked together, uh, through its associations. So, for example, if I had a dinner party and I took photos, I might link those photos to the recipes of the dishes that we served, and I might link it to um, to correspondence with other people who went to the dinner party. So, fast forward, and the the memics served as the the basic inspiration for the design of the web and the web of course, is organized in terms of uh, information that's linked together through associations. And this mimics the way that human memory is theorized to be organized in terms of a semantic network. So when, when I think of pizza, I think of Ray's Pizza, right? Because I lived in New York. If you hear pizza, you might think of cheese or pepperoni because that's your experience. So when we go to where we're on the, uh, the web and, you know, we, we, we read something, say we're on a Wikipedia page, we read an idea and that sparks all kinds of associations in our mind. We see a link that maps onto one of these associations. We click on it. We read new content. It sets off just a firestorm of associations in our minds. And, you know, there's this kind of back and forth. You know, we come up with new associations. We can pursue those on the web. We also see links. We can pursue those. And so there's this kind of back and forth. And before you know it, we're, we're joyriding 
through the web. Mm, wow. Well, let's talk uh, about multitasking because you say that it's been shown to be associated with lower performance when objectively measured. Um, you talk about the switch costs, uh, negative emotions, but you say the highest cost is in using our precious and limited attentional capacity or cognitive resources, especially when we have to keep track of multiple interrupted tasks. It's like having a tank that leaks and leaves less fuel for actually doing our work. So how do you deal with this issue of multitasking um, in a world where we are, you know, constantly interrupted? I mean, right now I have one browser tab open, which has my note-taking app, uh, which happens to be organized exactly like the web, but it has my notes for your book, for example, and I have to keep other things shut off. Um, so how do we deal with this issue of multitasking? Well, so first of all, you're, you're right in the sense that there, there is a performance cost. So we, we know that multitasking causes higher errors. We, we know this in real world studies of physicians, nurses, pilots. We know this from decades of laboratory studies that show multitasking, uh, leads to more errors. Um, you're right about a switch cost that every time you switch your attention to something else, um, it, it takes time to orient to that new, uh, activity. And so when we're switching very rapidly and we, we do switch very rapidly on our screens on, on average 47 seconds, we're always having to reorient. And, you know, the, the metaphor that I like to use is that we have this internal whiteboard in our minds. And every time we switch attention, think of it as erasing the information you needed for that last task and having to write new information for the current task you're doing. And, and that, and that's a switch cost that takes time for our minds to, to come up with this new information. Sometimes, just like with a real whiteboard, we can't erase it completely and there's a residue. And so if I'm reading some gripping news story and then I try to go back to work, that news story, parts of it might stay with me and interfere with my task at hand. So that's, that's another kind of cost. And of course, you're right. It, it causes stress. We know. In laboratory research, it increases blood pressure. There's a physiological marker that's associated with stress that, that rises. Uh, in, in my work where we've used heart rate monitors and logged computer activity, we see a very strong correlation with, uh, stress and attention shifting and, and people report subjectively that, uh, they have higher perceived stress when their attention shifts. So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot <laughs> that's that's going on when people multitask. Yeah. Well, so one thing you talk about is these four distraction myths. The first is that we should always strive to be focused on our computers and in that way we can be productive. Flow is the ideal state we should strive for when we use our technologies, distractions, interruptions, and multitasking we experience while on our devices are due primarily to the notifications we receive and to our own lack of discipline and rote mindless activity that we do on our computers has no value. And, you know, it's kind of funny because some of that flies in the face of a lot of the things that people like Stephen Kotler and Cal Newport have written about. So talk to me about these four distraction myths. Sure. 
So let, let's start with the idea of uh, having long periods of unbroken focus. So, you know, we have limited attentional resources. And, you know, you, you can't have long stretches of unbroken focus without taking a break in the same way that we can't lift weights all day without taking a break, right? We, we use up our resources when, when we're uh, focused. Um, the idea of flow, right? It's, flow is, is a wonderful idea. It's, it's an idea that the psychologist, uh, Mihaly Shiksamahali, uh, came up with. And it's, it's the idea that, uh, we are so immersed in what we're doing that we, we just lose track of time. We're just not aware of time passing. Uh, when I was in art, I would get into flow regularly. Uh, and so if a person is in a field like, like art or music or, or if, if you do sports, um, uh, if you have a hobby, hobby that you're passionate about, uh, woodworking or ceramics, um, these are, these are all ways that you can get into flow and you can get into flow pretty easily. But for, uh, people who do knowledge work, it's it's a different kind of mindset. It's more of an analytical kind of thinking that's done. And the nature of the work is not very conducive to flow. So, you know, a person who's working on a budget or working um, on a strategic plan, I mean, the, the, even writing, uh, you know, if I, I write an article, uh, I I will use the analytical thinking i will i will be focused but i won't be in a state of flow and i've i've talked to many many people in information work who say uh you know they might get into flow if they're in a brainstorming session with other people right that that mm -hmm. might work uh people who do complex coding can get into flow people who play games on the computer can get into flow but it's it's just not a state that it, that we might expect uh, to happen very often in information work. But the kind of the kind of thinking we do use, analytical thinking, can can result in doing things that are very rewarding and very fulfilling. So we don't have to get into flow like I did as an artist or as musicians do. Um, and let, I'll give you another example. Uh, there's a person I interviewed in the book who's a musician, Barry Lazaro. And he talks about how he gets into flow when he plays music. And he and he, he, he plays jazz and he plays rock and the musicians play off of each other and they get into this flow state. But in his other work in his day to day job, he um he books musicians and he's he's not in flow when he does this but you know he has to he has to be focused so it's different kinds of thinking hmm. uh should we if should we go on first yes Some please the other so uh let me talk about the 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 road mindless activity uh this this gets a very bad rap and you know, the, the idea is we should stay away from doing anything 
mindless because it's distracting and it doesn't serve a purpose. And I disagree because having being deeply engaged in something but not using a lot of mental effort can be a good way to step back and replenish ourselves from when we're exhausted or when our cognitive resources are getting spent. And let me give the example of the writer Maya Angelou. And she had what she called her big mind, which she used for her creative deep thought. And she had her little mind, which she used to to step back and replenish. And what did she do? She played crossword puzzles. So that that was her rote kind of activity, um, you know, simple crossword puzzles to to replenish. So rote activity can be done strategically as a way to step back. Now, the, the best break of all, and I, I want to go up on record saying that's the best break of all is to go outside and take a walk in nature for 20 minutes because we know that's the most restorative way to to get back our our attention. Uh, from my own research, we know that it increases divergent thinking, which is, uh, think of it as brainstorming. But uh, circumstances don't always allow for us to do that. If you can't do that, you should get up, walk around for a break. That's that's also great. Um, but it's also not bad to just do something, you know, that's simple and easy, keeps you mentally engaged. Uh, it it allows ideas to incubate in the back of your mind, and and people report all kinds of simple activities. You know, you, you can do knitting. Someone talked about throwing a ball against a screen, uh, you know, putting with a with a golf putter, putting a ball. Uh, there's there's all kinds of ways and whatever works for you in that sense. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So the thing that caught my attention about all the activities you mentioned is that none of them involve the internet or the computer. There's there's nothing inherently wrong with doing some simple activity on, on your phone or the computer either. Uh, my road activity that I turn to is uh, is this anagram game. It's very easy, um, and it's it just it gives my mind a, a kind of break. But it but I'm lightly very lightly engaged. Uh, what's the the problem? Is when we get stuck, when we go in, into a rabbit hole with these games. And so you have to be very strategic and you have to make sure to limit your time when you do it. So if, if you've got a few minutes before you know you're going to go into a tough meeting, uh, sure, that's fine to do one of these simple activities. There's, there's no problem. You've got this hook to pull you out, which is, which is the meeting. Um, but. Don't get yourself stuck. That's, that's the important point. These, these simple activities can be, um, very, uh, alluring and magnetic and keep us stuck to them. And so you need to devise a way to not get yourself stuck, which is setting a timer, uh, probing yourself, keep asking yourself, do I feel replenished? Okay. Time to step back. Well, the other thing I noticed is that you didn't mention social media as one of these rote activities because, you know, I have a feeling that, you know, a lot of people are thinking to themselves, great, well, that means I can go and screw around on Facebook for a little bit. Uh, and I'm curious what your research shows about that, because I feel like that when I do that as a rote activity, like if I did any of the things you were mentioning, I would find them replenishing. But for some reason, if I go on social media, uh, 
it either turns into hours of distraction. Don't get me wrong. There are times when I've gone on social media where I've actually gotten something useful. Like I've met a lot of podcast guests from, uh, you know, browsing Twitter. Um, sometimes something somebody writes on Facebook sparks an idea for a blog post. But uh, I'm curious, you know, about the role of social when it comes to these rote activities. Yeah. So it, you know, it depends on the individual. I probably would not recommend doing social media as a as a way to take a quick break. Um, you know, for some people, it doesn't make them very happy. For others, they do. By the way, the, the research is, is really mixed on this and, and it's very nuanced on the effects that social media has on our, um, our moods. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I would be very careful with social media. And you're right. It's, uh, it's easy to go down a rabbit hole in social media. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this idea of um, cognitive resource allocation, because you say that your cognitive resources can drain and that, and that affects your performance in the short term, say when you're working on an hour-long effortful task and dealing with interruptions. But in the long run, over the day, homeostatic variation, the time elapsed since you woke up, is also stated with declining performance. The reason you feel drained and start making errors is likely that you've been using these limited resources like there's no tomorrow, and the demands on them exceed what you have available. And you say the theory of limited cognitive resources can explain your performance when your workload is high. So, you know, when I read that section of your book, it, it sparked an idea uh, for a blog post, basically talking about how do you plan your day based on cognitive resource allocation. So mm-hmm. talk to me about that. Like, how would I, for example, you know, somebody who hosts a podcast, does interviews, writes, reads, et cetera, um, based on cognitive resource allocation, like how would I allocate my cognitive resources most effectively? Yeah, that's that's such a great question. So we found that people have rhythms over the course of the day for when when they're at their peak focus and when they're in, you can think of it as troughs. And so the one of the first things that you can do is understand when your peak focus times are. And it has to do with uh with a lot of things. It, it concerns your, your chronotype. Are you an early type? If so, your peak will be earlier in the day. Are you a late type? It's going to be later. We, we find that for most people, their peak focus times are mid to late morning. And then again, uh, mid to late afternoon, like 2 to 3 p.m. So plan your day so that the hardest task you have to do and the task that requires the most creativity is done at those peak focus times. Um, Most people actually don't start their day doing their hardest tasks, but they kind of ramp themselves up. They they get themselves ready. You you know, think of it as getting those wheels turning to to do those those really uh, hard tasks when they're uh, a little bit later. Uh, so, for example, for myself, I, I start my day usually doing email, which is um, to, to get it out of the way. You know, for the most part, it's it's not a hard task. And if I don't do email first, the zygarnic effect is going to kick in and I'm going to be thinking about that unfinished task. And it's going to be bothering me. So I, I do the email to get it out of the way. And then I start working um, on, a, on a hard task. So 
Design your day intentionally to think about those times of the day when your focus is at its peak and make sure to intentionally design significant breaks into your day. And, you know, these are times of the day when you're just really pulling back. And that's when you can schedule in your your 20-minute walk. Uh, and if that doesn't work, you can do contemplation or meditation or, you know, whatever works for you to be able to replenish. It's so important to be able to replenish. And you can think of it as when when we do less, we can actually accomplish more. Because by by pulling back and replenishing, it gives us more sustenance so that we can go back and work more effectively. Let's talk about this idea of shifting between working spheres. So, for example, right now I'm talking to you, I'm, you know, doing an interview for my podcast. But when I'm done, you know, the thing I know that I want to work on is something that I'm writing. And I'm curious about the transition between working spheres and um, how you do that without draining your cognitive resources. Yeah. So, you know, when you need to take a break, it's best to do it at what's called a break point in the task. So do it at a point in the task where you have completed a, a, a thought. So, you know, never, under, it, never interrupt yourself in the middle of a paragraph. Fin finish a section of what you're writing. Or if you're working on a budget, fi finish a complete portion of that budget before you start and switch to something else. We we want to minimize this this notion of the zygarnic effect where you've got this unfinished task and you have to go back to it. Of course, if if you still are writing that uh say that book chapter, you're still working on that budget, it's it's still gonna be uh in your at the in the back of your mind, but it'll it will have less tension for you because you've already completed a you know, you've come to a a resting point in that task. So, you know, the, the best thing of all is to monotask, to be able to work through one task to completion before working on something else. Uh, going back to what we talked about earlier in the show about reforming the, the university system for professors, um, you know, that I, I think it's so useful if professors just had a, a single project to work on, but they really worked on it in in depth, and and then they wouldn't be switching between you know having six or ten different research projects, each with different priorities and each with different deadlines. That's that's what hurts our performance and creates stress. Okay, let me frame this with a concrete example. So I conduct my interview with you. I know it's going to be published, you know, probably about three weeks from now or so. We have to basically put it into our database um, where it gets marked as recorded. I have to add a headshot so our illustrator can do an album cover. And then I'll go back to doing, you know, whatever it was I was working on prior to the interview. So I guess the the question then is, you know, a lot of times I end up just marking the interview as recorded and then going back to whatever I was doing. And I end up having to go back and do that stuff later. So I'm just curious, like if we were talking about this in particular, like 
how would you approach this based on your research? You know, say I've finished my interview with you. I know the next thing I want to do is work on my writing project. Um, what does that look like from in the transition between those two working spheres, ideally? Okay, so so you're would you would you say that the interview then is completed, except well, for the fact have, that yeah, once you and I have recorded and you know I press stop record and we both hang up. To me, the interview is completed at that point. I mean, granted, there's ancillary tasks that need to be done in order for the interview to be published, mm -hmm. um, but the interview is completed. Well, I, I would most certainly take a break. Get your mind refreshed um, so that you're 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 not just moving directly from one working sphere to another. Um, the problem that really became exacerbated during the pandemic was that people would schedule Zoom meetings back to back, and then they would go from one meeting to another without any transition in between. And so it's it's important to have a transition between working spheres. So it, it gives your mind a, a chance to refresh a bit and sort of clear out the, the the clutter from the last thing we did so that you're ready to tackle something new. So, um, you know, the, the typical practice of uh, scheduling our day is to schedule things back to back, you know, at 11 o'clock, here's what I'm doing. At 12 o'clock, here's what I'm doing. And instead of scheduling things back to back like that, instead, schedule things based on how much attention you have available, considering the fact that you need some time to replenish, you know, build your resources back up. And if you just did a an interview, that's that's probably spending a, a good deal of your attentional capacity. And so step back for a bit, right? Replenish, and then you can go on and, and do your writing. Yeah. That's actually why I only do one interview for a day, because I noticed if I tried to do more than one, the quality would decline. Yeah, I, and, and I would think so, because you're, you're expending so much mental energy uh, in, in doing this. And, you know, it's, there, there would be a, a residue, I would think, because you've, you know, you've been very immersed in this interview and then suddenly you're switching to do writing. And sometimes it's hard to get some of the content out of your mind of, mm -hmm. of the last working sphere that you did. Yeah. Well, talk to me about the four properties of human agency from Bandura and this concept of meta-awareness to actually have some control over our behavior when it comes to our digital habits. Yeah. So um, I, I draw on the work of Albert Bandura, who was a, a very prominent social psychologist who worked on the idea of self-efficacy. And I, I do believe that people can gain agency uh, and control over their attention in, in the digital world. And so the, the first property is called intention. And, you know, a lot of things we do when we're on our devices are, are automatic. So I, I might grab my phone. That's an automatic behavior. Uh, I might switch to news or to social media. That's, that's automatic. Sometimes these, these, uh, internal interruptions, these self interruptions we do are, are based on automatic behaviors. Responding to a notification is automatic. 
the idea is to make these automatic actions uh, conscious, to bring them into our conscious awareness. And when we can do that, then we can be intentional and act on them. And so meta-awareness is this idea of being aware of what you're doing as it's unfolding. The, the idea came to me during the pandemic. My university offered a course in mindfulness-based stress reduction. And I found it very valuable. It helps you focus on the present. And I realized that we could do something very similar when we're on our devices. And we can probe ourselves by asking ourselves questions. When, when you have that urge to leave what you're doing and say, go check the news, you can learn to ask yourself, do I need to check the news right now? Why, why am I doing it? Oh, it's because this is boring. This task is boring. But I find that the, the act of probing myself helps keep me on track and it prevents me from, from going to that other site. And if I am on a site like, say, social media, I can probe myself and I can say, okay, have, have you really gotten what you need from, from this art? You know, or if I'm on a news site, I might ask myself, am I just getting marginal returns? You know, I've gotten the gist of the story. I've read a couple of paragraphs. I Do I really need to read more? So meta-awareness is a skill. It's a skill that anyone can develop. And, and it's a way to help keep us on track. Uh, they, an, another property is, is this idea of um, practicing forethought. And that means understanding how your current actions will impact your life later on in the day. And I think end, end of the day is a, a really good time point to think about. So if I want to spend 30 minutes reading the news, really visualize yourself at 10 o'clock at night. And, you know, am I really going to be able to relax and read my book or watch my favorite show? drinking a glass of wine, or am I still going to be working furiously on finishing this deadline, right? So this can, this can help stop us and uh, keep us on course when we visualize our, our future selves later in the day. Um, we can also uh, practice self-regulation. It's another property. So some people were born with a very good Ability to self-regulate, uh, others not so. Uh, but you know, even if you weren't born with good self-regulation skills, don't despair. You can develop them. And uh, first of all, you know, we talked about turning off notifications. That that's a the first thing that uh, that you should do. Um, you can also be very strategic in how you use social media. Uh, you know, many people just accumulate so many different uh, network connections. And, you know, a, a network of 2,000 people is going to take up more of your time and attention than a much smaller network. And there is something called the Dunbar number, which the sociologist Robin Dunbar uh, discovered, which is that people can only manage about 150 relationships in any kind of meaningful way. And it's funny because when I talked with my students about it, 
uh, one of my students went and cleaned up her her uh, social media account and limited to it to just uh, 150 people. I'm not I'm not recommending to do that, but if you do want to do some house cleaning, that's just fine. But you know, be be strategic. Uh, and uh, very quickly, the the last property is uh, about course correction. And, you know, the idea of designing your day intentionally and understanding the, the times when your attention is at its peak and intentionally designing breaks into your day, you know, quiet time when, when you can um, go outside or meditate, contemplate, or, or even doing road activity is also really important. One other thing that caught my attention uh, in that section uh, on agency was the idea of distraction blockers and the idea that we're effectively outsourcing our agency but not developing our capacity for for it when we use them. And I can tell you as somebody who uses them pretty regularly, they have been incredibly helpful, but I, I just wondered about that. They 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 can be very helpful, uh, but but remember the the software becomes a proxy agent for you. And I would like to see people learn how to develop their own agency. It's it's like having training wheels on your bike. You never learn how to ride the bike. You know, we're we're in this digital world, right? The, the ship has sailed. And I think it's very important for us to be able to have control over our behaviors and, um, you know, be able to determine our, ourselves uh, how we want to allocate our attention. Uh, you know, having having said this, I I do think that there are opportunities for uh, AI to be able to serve as coaches uh, to help us gain control. Now, this is different from from blocking sites. A, a coach can help a person understand, you know, what their attentional capacity is. Can help coach them into understanding how long they've been on a break. Okay, now it's time to come back, so that a person can actually get to know their own personal rhythm. And we we did do a study at Microsoft Research. Um, this was with a uh, uh, a person named Eve Kimani, uh, and we found there to be some promise with a conversational agent that could help people could help coach people into improving their their digital behaviors. Well, let's wrap this up with two final things. Um, you talk about this idea of taking a socio-technical approach to our digital behavior, and you say that the internet is a marketplace of social capital. Social capital is the benefit we get from being in a group. We exchange resources through relationships. These can be social, intangible, or tangible tangible resources and our desire to gain social capital keeps our attention to drawn to social media. Um, so talk to me about this because that, you know, somebody like Cal Newport obviously takes, you know, an extreme view on this and says, don't use it at all. So where do you disagree with him on some of this? Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the technology, is, we, we don't use technology in a vacuum, right? We, we bring our social natures, our cultural practices, our environment, all, all of these influence the, the digital world that we're in. 
And social capital is just a very basic aspect of human nature. And it's the idea that we, we trade favors with people. So, you know, if, if I do something for you, I expect you're going to do something for me. If, if you invite me to some social event, I'm going to reciprocate and invite you. And it translates into how we use electronic communications. So I'm, I'm going to answer the email of someone with who I expect is going to do a favor for me at some point. I, I want to maintain a, a balance of social capital with that individual. Uh, if that individual happens to be your manager, of course, you're going to, you're going to jump on that and make sure to monitor your inbox for messages from your supervisor uh, or from from a colleague because you want to maintain good social capital and and so that's uh that's how it works and this is um it it helps uh, serves to drive us to stay active on email on social media uh it's it's because of our social natures well this has been absolutely fascinating um I so I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So the, sorry, can you re, the question yeah. is what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh wow, what a great question! Um, I'm not sure there is a single thing. I, I think it's a person who's very committed. In, in what they believe in. And I think that makes them, um, uh, you know, that when, you, when you're committed in something, you have passion, you have drive, you have confidence. And I think others appreciate that. And they, you know, they, they may not necessarily agree with that person, but they certainly recognize the, the drive behind that individual. And it, when a person has so much drive, they they also have grit and resilience, and and that's what makes someone, um, you know, really successful for for what they choose to do. Uh, it's not the fact that you have failed, but it's the fact that you failed and you've pulled yourself back up, and and you continued to go. Um, I I had an art teacher, Mo Brooker, and probably the my favorite saying of anything that anyone ever told me was uh do you have the courage to fail and so you know taking risks and failing is is really important but when you have grit and resilience and draw you can pull yourself back up and continue hmm. amazing well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, uh, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, the book and everything else that you're up to? Sure. So you can go to my website, which is www.gloriamark.com. That's all one word, Gloria Mark. And you can sign up for my newsletter and you can, um, uh, find information about the book there. You can also order the book at your favorite uh, retailer. 
Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.